Acts 11, verse 26. And when they had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So that it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the reason for this verse is this last phrase. It's for our series. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, 16 through 26. It says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murderers, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Some of you are joining in. You can join in with me if you'd like. Peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And the focus of tonight for this Bible study is going to be this phrase from verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering. Let's pray. God, we love you. We're thankful, Lord, for your hand that's upon us here tonight. I pray, Jesus, that you'd be with us. I pray, God, that you'd help us. God, anoint my mind. Lord Jesus, that I may deliver the word as you have intended and as you inspired it to be. Lord, I pray you'd let your word strike the heart of everyone in this room, me included. Let us have ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church tonight. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. amen. So you may be seated. Sorry, forgot to add that part. Um, so to recap what we've talked about, we're talking about what it means to be a Christian. Our series is called I Am a Christian, and we're exploring what that means. And the very first lesson, and, and you can, this is a question and answer, and you don't have to stick up your hand and be acknowledged, you just get to holler back at me, all right? Being a Christian, is it because you attend church? Let's try that again. Is it because you attend church? There we go. Is it because you like certain elements of Christian morality? Is it because you embrace certain Christian teachings? Some of you hesitated there for a second. But the answer, yes. That's right, Dave. The answer is no. This isn't a philosophy. This is not stoicism. You know, the competing dominant philosophy that was what you could consider of a conservative nature in the Greco-Roman world was Stoicism. Is this a philosophy? No. 
It's not. Being a Christian is something that you must be born into. That's what we talked about week one. Week two, we said once we are born again, we are to depart from the works of the flesh and we are to walk in the power of the Spirit, which was last week. So now tonight, we are going to be talking about what walking in the Spirit will look like. We're going to be talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we've made this comment before in other Bible studies and other sermons and other messages, but it must be restated in a study like this. The fruit of the Spirit is a result of the work of the Spirit in your life. John 15, 4 through 5 says this, Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. That's the difference between the stoicism of the Greco-Roman world, which has many admirable qualities, and being a Christian, that life transformation, character transformation, the transformation of your mind and of your heart is not something that you produce on your own. Fruit can only grow from a branch that is grafted into the vine. It comes from that branch abiding in the vine. And the vine isn't your will. The vine isn't your discipline. The vine isn't your get up and go. The vine is the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these fruit of the spirit are qualities that are not something that you can manufacture on your own. You can't go to Amazon or go to Indigo and get you a $9 coffee from the Starbucks there and life skill and life hack your way into a better character by visiting the self-help section and perusing through a list of books. One commentator on Galatians 5 said this, The fruit of the Spirit is not qualities or are not qualities of personal behavior which men can elect, cultivate, and appropriate as part of their character. This only can come by a work of the Holy Ghost in your life. You can improve yourself through human effort. You can change behaviors through human effort, but you cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit with human effort. That requires the work of the Holy Ghost. Because when we read about the fruit of the Spirit, when we read what Paul is writing, Paul is writing about the character of Jesus being formed in us by the power of His resurrected Spirit. In fact, if we want to see the fruit of the Spirit take on flesh and live, we see them perfectly personified in Christ Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of our Lord and Savior. And so in order for this fruit to be manifest in your life, we've got to allow the Spirit to permeate every part of our character. Now... You may be saying, Adam, if this is a work of the Holy Ghost and this isn't, you know, a me work thing, then why, you know, if I can't make it or bear it on my own, then why talk about it at all? Well, 
as we talked about, I believe it was last week, about walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is something that we've got to set our minds to. And so talking about the fruit of the Spirit is about putting a target in front of us all for us to focus on, to set our mind to, and then pursue Jesus so that He can create these things in our life. While the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Ghost, we are not passive in the process. We have got to submit to the Word of God. We've got to submit to biblical teaching. We've got to submit to the instruction of pastors and teachers in our life. And most of all, we've got to have a burning desire to shed the works of the flesh and to be transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we teach on the fruit of the Spirit so that we can find out where the gaps are in our life. So that we can go, okay, I'm doing pretty great over here. I'm dropping the ball over here, so I'm going to focus my mind, my heart, and my prayer, and I'm going to have the doors of my soul flung open for the Lord Jesus to change me in this area of my life. God is not going to force the fruit of the Spirit onto the soil of your soul. He's not going to do that. You've got to say, Lord, this is where I lack and this is where I need your help. So, before we jump into descriptions, we've talked about what the fruit of the Spirit, where it comes from. It comes from the work of the Lord, work of the Holy Ghost in our life that we diligently pursue. Before we jump into our descriptions here tonight, I want to cover this point. How important is this, really? I mean, it's Bible study, so we, we know it's pretty important, right? If we're going to take one of 48 to 50 times a year, we meet for 45 minutes of biblical teaching. It's got to be up there in the top 48 things a preacher can talk about in, you know, a calendar. I cannot underscore how important the fruit of the Spirit is in your life. Let's look at Matthew 7, 15 through 23. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. The Bible, we use the scripture to interpret scripture. We know what the fruits are because the Bible will tell you what the fruits are when it says fruits are this. Right? You'll know them by their fruits. And then he asks like the most rhetorical question ever. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer to that is no, they do not. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. So just by way of saying, you know, it's, they're not a bad person. I just, they just do, I just do bad things. That's wrong. That's, that's a cultural lie. If there is bad fruit coming from your life, it's probably because you got some bad stuff in you. The problem is always you. The problem is not the world. You know, people, this is a world cult, worldly thing, a worldly avenue or a way of thinking where we say, hey, don't blame me. I'm just a good person that occasionally does bad things. No, the Bible says bad fruit only comes from bad trees. It's, that's just how it works. It's how it works in the garden, how it works in the soul. And so if bad fruit's coming from your life the the problem is you the problem is me the problem is us every good tree bears good fruit but a bad tree bears bad fruit a good tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a bad tree bear good fruit listen to this every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down 
and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Good fruit is the marker of a Christian. It is the discerner between a false prophet and a true prophet. Notice, both Jesus' words in Matthew 7, as well as our passage in Galatians, speaking of the same subject of fruit, said nothing about supernatural gifts, nothing about miracles, signs, wonders, spiritual warfare, spirits, angels, nothing about giftedness, talent, good looks, hairline, praise God, wealth, charisma, life success. It was about character. Just these fruit. Character trumps giftedness every time. Not only will fruit be the way that we know people, but it will be the marker by which God knows people. Because listen to what he says as we read on in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I want you to listen to this, apostolic church. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them... I never knew you. By their fruits, you shall know them. And by their fruits, he shall know them. Fruits are the marker of a disciple of Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is the means by which God will determine who is His and who is not His. How important is the fruit of the Spirit, Adam? It's a salvation issue. 100% it is a salvation issue. And I'm passionate about this because I'm looking inwardly at my own life with much fear and conviction. But I also say this under the authority of the Word of God and the unction of the Holy Spirit. To fail to bear the fruit of the Spirit is to abandon the work of the Spirit in your life. I believe in apostolic ministry. I believe in spiritual ministry. Someday when we talk about life, death, the end of the world. Someday when we talk about the kingdom of the devil and the kingdom of heaven. I'll tell you about the times that I have had visions and I have had dreams while serving here at this church. One day maybe Sister Shaw, because I'm going to throw it out there. And now she's going to have to tell you about it. How she has experienced angelic visitations and has been used in the gifts of the spirit. There are people in this room that are used in the gifts of the spirit. One of the things I love about this church is we talk about the gift of healing and the working of miracles and prophecy and the gift of faith on a weekly basis because these are gifts that God has given to the church and these are things that we must exercise as children of God, as people who have authority in the Holy Ghost. But I have spoken openly about this before. I have many friends who have prophesied that today are backslidden. I have had friends that have sat in this pulpit or preached in this pulpit that we have brought in that are no longer serving the Lord. They have either fallen into worldliness, they have fallen into sexual immorality, or they have fallen into the trap of false doctrine. Some of my closest friends in the world 
And I can tell you, as their close friend, all can be traced back to a lack of one of these fruit in their life. An ignorance of one of these fruit in their life. Had nothing to do with their giftedness, had nothing to do with their talent, had nothing to do with their spirituality. They weren't okay, but they were deceived that they were because they were used by God. They were talented and they had potential. And as long as they felt the anointing, they thought they were okay. Listen, God, this is something I'm just going to be very vulnerable with you here tonight. This fruit of the spirit thing is something that I am pursuing in my life with all of my heart because God will speak through a donkey if it ministers to hurting people. God will use people because he loves his people. I have gotten into, and I, this is, I, I've been away for a week and I'm jet lagged and I have no filter. Hopefully Matt will be able to keep this online and I won't feel bad when I'm done. But I've had, I've got into arguments with friends that have gone to big Christian concerts and they were like, how can these people, you know, how can this not be okay? Because we felt the Lord at, you know, the Molson Amphitheater with this great big band. We, we felt the Lord at this great big event. And, and I'm going to be honest with you. I am aware of the lifestyle of these people that, that are famous in the Christian world. And, and they come onto the stage and because there are people that are in the stage, there are people that are in the crowd that are hungry for the Lord. God will use people that run up liquor bills for their promoters or God will use people that are abusers of drugs and alcohol and sexual immorality. God will pour himself through a donkey if there's someone in a crowd that needs and is desperate to find Jesus. But just because God uses a donkey doesn't mean he's blessed or doesn't mean that he approves of the lifestyle that that person has. The only thing that matters in your life is the fruit of the spirit and your pursuit of holiness. The presence of gifts and anointing is not the stamp of God's approval. It's not the stamp. The ability to wow a crowd is not the stamp of God's approval. Not to disillusion. i got to move on. I hope this is okay if I'm just real with you. But I, I have sat in, in backstages in green rooms as I've watched friends who've been preachers of the gospel say things to their buddies. Like, I'm not sure if I believe this anymore. And then get up and because they're good orators, cut a good shine on a rug, drive a crowd into a frenzy, and dozens of people receive the Holy Ghost. And inside, their life was away from God. I'm not saying this so that you would doubt the work of the Spirit. It should make you believe in the working of the supernatural even more. That God just moves, and God just works, and God is gracious and full of mercy. But it is not the supernatural giftedness of people that is the marker of God's approval. It is not the marker of God's approval on my life, nor any one of these pastoral staff members, nor yours. It is holiness and the fruit of the Spirit. Okay. There we go. Did not mean to say all that, just kind of came out. Let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. How important is the fruit of the Spirit? Your salvation depends on it. It does. So much more I could say, but I'm going to stop. All right. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Let's talk about these four fruit here today in the 
It says I have 21 minutes left, but I know I've got till 8.35. So um, <laughs> let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. The first one is love. Love is a quality as fundamental to God as his oneness and his holiness. Love is the penultimate and foundational fruit of the Spirit in our life. One commentator said this, and he had done a meta-analysis, which means a big survey of a lot of scholars that they've dedicated huge chunks of their life to the book of Galatians. Some commentators insist that in this context, love is a synonym for fruit and therefore encompasses the other characteristics on the list. Whether you agree with that statement or not, love is a central characteristic of both God and the faith. From love flows all of the fruit of the Spirit. From love flows all of the operation of God. It is the foundation for all of the other fruit. 1 Corinthians 13 quotes to us a passage we all know. The greatest of these is love. Romans chapter 13 says, love is the fulfillment of the law. This is because God is love. And his motivation for acting towards us is Love. First John 4, 8 through 9. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. What's Deuteronomy 6 and 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God was, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. John 3.16, the very first uh, phrase of that verse says, For God so loved the world. God's motivation towards you is from love. Even when he allows trial. Even when he allows tribulation. What's the scripture say? Those whom, I, those whom he loves, he also chastens. God doesn't chasten your life out of anger. He doesn't chasten your life out of frustration. God is not an exasperated dad at the park. God is a perfect heavenly father. He is love. So much so that if you don't have love, you don't know God, for God is love. How important is love in our lives? And I'm going to move quickly through this. I want to give to you the following considerations. Love as a fruit of the Spirit. How important is it in our lives? Love is the atmosphere in which believers are to conduct their lives. If love is the motivation of God, then love should be our motivation too. Ephesians 5.2 says, Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us and uh, an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet-smelling aroma. When you walk in bitterness and anger and the works of the flesh, the aroma of your life is not pleasant to God. But when you walk in the fruit of the Spirit and love 
The love of Jesus is being shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit. Love is the atmosphere by which you do everything in your Christian walk. It's even so supposed to be so natural to us that Colossians 3.14 says, But above all things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection or completeness. Love should be the consistent motive for all of our actions. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 14. Let all that you do be done with love. So love is the atmosphere which with you should put, you know, approach life. It motivates your actions. It's like a clothes, it's like a garment that you put on. But number two, love is the secret sauce of unity in the church. Colossians chapter 2 verse 2 says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God. What keeps the church together is love. Unity is the glue, or love is the glue that keeps the church unified. It begins when we're filled with the Holy Ghost, and we begin to love fellow Christians, Ephesians 1, 15. And it moves on to uh, everyone else that's you know in the church, including church leaders, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And then as love have, has its perfect work, you don't just love the people that are in your life, the people that are in your church, but you began to see everyone that you come in contact with the way Jesus does. But love is also the pathway to Christian maturity. Ephesians 4, uh, 15 says, Speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Philemon 9, Therefore, though I might be bold in Christ to command you what is fitting... Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, aged, and now also the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Love is the pathway to Christian maturity. Love is the pathway by which we make appeals to one another. Love is also the restraint that we put on the exercise of Christian liberty. Romans chapter 14, verse 15. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer Walking in love. Love is the motivation of all that we do. And by grieved, of course, we know the scripture is not referring to being upset by someone's life. Grieved means or offended means to backslide. And love is always accompanied by practical action. We don't have time to go through all of the scriptures, but the Apostle Paul talks about people in Corinthians restoring someone who had sinned because they loved them. In another passage, he talks about people who gave what they had the ability to give, including giving what they did not have beyond their ability, and they did so because of love. Love is the foundation for what we do. If we're operating out of the works of the flesh... Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. You're not operating out of the Spirit. God moves through love and compassion always. And that should be the motivation for everything we do too. Joy.
When you think about God, what comes to mind? You think that God's powerful and sovereign and king of kings? You're correct because Psalm 47, 7 through 8 says, God is king of all the earth. God reigns over all the nations. God sits on a holy throne. If you thought of God as holy, you are correct because Psalm 99 verse 5 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill for the Lord our God is holy. But do you ever think about God as happy? Do you ever think about God as joyful. I mean, is God happy? We don't think about it that much. Maybe it's because sometimes we're not, you know, that happy or that joyful. We know he loves us, but we have all said things like, I've got to love you, but I don't have to like you right now. We know he acts justly and mercifully towards us, But does he do that from a sense of great duty and obligation and frustration at times? Well, I said I was going to, so I guess I better. Right? Is God that exasperated dad at the park that is like, okay, I'll push you one more time on the swing. And then we're going to go home. We're going to go home. The football game, quarter's already done. We're going home. I'm going to push it one more time. And you're not really happy to be there. You're just there because you said you would. And you realize you overextended yourself and you really didn't want to be there. You'd rather be lying on the couch. Is that God? No. We don't think about this a whole lot. We don't think about the emotional mind and world of God. But we have emotions it's because we're made in the image of God. We didn't evolve our way into emotions. We have emotions because God has them. And so what's God's default emotion? Psalm 147 verse 11 says, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. One of the coolest verses. I'm going to read it. Zephaniah 3.17 in both the New King James and the ESV. The Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice. This is God. This is the Lord. This is the King of Kings. He will rejoice over you with singing. ESV puts it even even better. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When's the last time you thought of God, as it were, in the passenger seat of your car, when you have your worship playlist on, the Life Point One on Spotify or Apple Music, we still got it, thought I'd throw a plug out there for it. I add music to it all the time, I hope, hope, you, hope you're listening to it. You got that turned up, and you're praising God, you're worshiping God, God's rejoicing over you with gladness and with joy. That when God sees you trying, when he sees you pushing and he sees you pressing, and when he sees you doing your best to live for him with all of your heart, when Zephaniah appears into the realm of God and hears about how God will save, 
how God will redeem, how God will rescue his people. God says, when I get done saving you, I'm going to be so happy, I'm going to sing at the top of my lungs. In fact, rejoicing in the original Hebrew in Zephaniah literally means to dance. It means to jump around, not like a weird choreographed TikTok thing that maybe some of your kids do that makes everyone feel uncomfortable. But like an explosion of rejoicing and happiness. I don't know if anybody's kid does that. I don't have TikTok. So um, it's like if you've watched a dramatic scene of rescuers when they pulled, remember the Haiti earthquake? And, and there was this little boy that was trapped under the building. And then the firefighters finally got to him. And they pulled this little boy out. And as they're pulling him out of this awful hole of rubble, his hands shoot up into the air and he breaks into a big smile. And then these firefighters and Red Cross workers, they break out into like jumping and shouting. One of them gets on the hood of a pickup truck and dances a little jig. It's wild to see a whole bunch of rough and tumble, burly, alpha male guys that are there in the middle of carnage as stoic as all get out. But when they finally pull that little boy out from his death and destruction, they began to rejoice. This is the heart of God. God is not angry. God is not mad. God is not depressed. God is not down in the dumps towards his people. When you mess up and you repent and you say you're sorry and you get back up and you pray back through, God doesn't have his arms folded, scowling at you, going, well, I hope you never do that again. No, God rejoices in your direction. What did Jesus say? He told a triplicate of parables. He told the parable about the lost sheet, the lost coin, and the lost boy. I believe it was in Luke. Luke and in Matthew. But when the sheep is found, he says, Jesus says in the parable that the shepherd knocks on the doors of all of his neighbors, throws a block party and says, we are going to rejoice because this lamb who was lost has now been found. Now, I've heard commentators and I've heard sermons as people jump through hoops and be like, well, lambs are really important. And, and it, it was really important to the shepherd. Well, I did my cultural research. Everybody thought Jesus was stretching the story a little bit much. Like who would shut down the neighborhood or the street for one lamb? No one would do that. Maybe for a whole flock, but not for one lamb. Lambs go lost all of the time. But Jesus is saying through the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy, if you think that rejoicing like this is too much, wait till you see what heaven looks like when one sinner who repents over 90 and 9 just people that need no repentance. It's because God is full of joy. When he moves towards us, he is motivated by love and joy. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the duty, who for the exasperation, who for the, well, I guess I better do this because no one else can, who for the joy, he despised the shame. You understand how agonizing the cross was? 
They beat Jesus within an inch of his life. They put inch-long thorns into his scalp and they pounded them into, they scraped the bone. They beat him so he was marred more than any other man. And they hung him completely naked as a crowd jeered and made fun of him in the most vulnerable moment of his life as he walked into his death with the crushing weight and shame of sin resting upon his shoulders. But the Bible says that when Jesus looked forward and he saw you being a part of the church. He disrespected. He despised. He showed the shame. No regard. And he pushed forward through the pain and the suffering and the sacrifice because of the joy of you being saved. God is not angry. God is full of joy. Zephaniah says he sings at the top of his lungs over your life. And I know that may sound a little weird to some of us who picture God as stoic and straight-faced and unmovable. No, 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 that's not God. God rejoices over his children. And when you yield your emotional world to the Spirit, the same joy that God feels about you, he gives to you. The joy... Of the Lord, Nehemiah says, is your strength. It's God's own joy that he gives to you. It's a joy that doesn't come from pleasure. It's a joy that doesn't come from circumstances. It's not a joy that comes from enjoying the the peaks and never the valleys of life because that's not realistic. You're going to have mountains you got to climb. You're going to have darkness and night and valleys that are like the shadow of death that you're going to have to walk through. And so the joy is not something that you have because God fixes all of your problems in your life. No, God gives you his own joy. Like he gave you his own holiness and his own righteousness when you were born of the water and of the spirit. Like he gave you his own power to live an overcoming life by when he, by the resurrecting power of the Holy Ghost that now dwells inside your mortal body. When you yield your emotions to God, God gives you his own joy. No matter, Paul says, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Kara or joy is used 70 times in the New Testament to signify a feeling of happiness based on spiritual realities. You have joy because you have Jesus. Because you have Jesus, you have joy. Joy that is a quality of his own emotional framework and mind comes into your spirit. The joy that is part of God's own nature that he imputes to you by the power of the Holy Ghost if you'll let him. Peace. I gotta move on. It's more than, I'll be really quick with this because I've preached about this here like four times and so I really don't have anything new on this particular subject. Peace is more than the absence of conflict. These scriptures stand in the face of contemporary culture. Joy in the Greco-Roman world was associated with life's pleasures. But Paul says it's got nothing to do with this world. It's got everything to do with Jesus. Same peace in both the Old and the New Testament. Peace in the Greco-Roman world, in the pagan world surrounding Israel, always had to do with the absence of conflict. But peace 
had nothing to do with any of those things according or for the people of the Bible. Peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom means life according to God's design. Life as God created it to be. Shalom was more than the absence of conflict. It transcended disruption. It was about a state of wholeness in your life. A state of unity between you and God. And a state of wholeness in your relationship with God and with other people. In two-thirds of their occurrences in Scripture, peace is the state of fulfillment that is a result of the presence of the Lord. Peace is when your life gets in alignment with Jesus. Peace happens when you live according to his design. Peace happens when you have right relationships in the body. Peace happens when you are in submission to God and his word. Peace happens when peace happens to your life. You've got a life that is whole and complete. Your brokenness is healed. Your emotions are restored and your life has been rebuilt. Because peace is shalom or restored relationship, through the new birth we have been made or we have, we've been made at peace with God. And since we have been made at peace with God, because we yield to the Spirit in our life, we should strive to be at peace with others. Romans 14, 19. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Because God repaired, because he himself is our peace, having restored what has been broken between us, having broken down that middle wall of partition that separated us between him and, and like our sin, that, that wall of sin that's been, that's been broken down by the blood of Jesus because Jesus has become our peace and our relationship with the Lord has been restored. We should seek for wholeness, harmony, and love, not just with God, but with one another. Galatians chapter 5. Remember when, when we, and I, I, I got 12 seconds left and we got one more fruit to go through. Remember when we read the works of the flesh a few weeks ago? We had like some of the most perverse things a human could do. And then we had like murder, drunkenness, and wild parties. Sandwiched in between that were things that break the peace. Things like contention, hatred, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions heresies, which is when you take your dissent in the body and you shop your anger toward, with other people so that you can get them on your side. The fruit of the Spirit is the opposite of these things in your family, in your life, and in the body of Christ. Peace seeks to restore the relationship. Peace seeks to bring wholeness into the relationship. Because of Jesus, the divisions which divide people out there should not divide us in here. We are all different, but we should not advocate for our differences to the disunity of the body. Now, the first three fruit, and musicians, if you could come help me kind of land the plane. First three fruit are states of being that are outside of life circumstances. Love, 
It's the love of God. Joy. It's the joy of the Lord. Peace. It's the restoration and wholeness that comes from God. It's not the absence of conflict, but it's God restoring relationship between you and him. And then you go out and you pursue peace with others. These are all outside of life circumstances. They are states of being. They are states of mind. The next fruit is different, and this is where we'll end. Said love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Literally, this word means, when you take a look at how it's used across Greco-Roman literature, long-suffering means to literally have a long temper. A long temper is different than having a short temper. Now, a long temper doesn't mean that you stay angry for a long time. How we would say it in English vernacular is that we have a long fuse instead of a short fuse. The ability to suffer long with patience without losing your mind. This is probably the one fruit I need the Lord's help with the most. In Hebrew, long-suffering, because Hebrew is a very pictorial language, long-suffering in Hebrew is long nostrils through which anger is vented. That That the exhaust pipe of your spirit is long enough that the heat that's coming from the combustion of the engine of your soul doesn't blast out and burn everybody as you deal with what frustrates you. You have long nostrils with which you can vent your anger. In the New Testament, long-suffering is the patient endurance of some wrong without responding in anger and without taking revenge. Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another. That means putting up with people. If you can't put up with people, you do not have long-suffering. You need that fruit of the Spirit. Forgiving one another. If you get mad and break off contact and you get mad and you get angry you're like I'm never talking to that person again or you just give them the silent treatment you're not long suffering because long suffering says I'm going to put up with you and then I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to put up with you and then I'm going to forgive you if anyone has a complaint against one another even as Christ forgave he's got to throw that in there doesn't he has Jesus forgiven you Well then, so you also must do. Once again, a quality of God, a quality of God in Christ Jesus, now to be mirrored in the life of our believer. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that it's the goodness of God which leads you to repentance? As believers, we are commanded to emulate the Lord's patience, especially with other believers, showing forbearance with one another. Ephesians 4, 1 through 4 says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called in all lowliness and gentleness, in long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. So if you get mad at this body, There's only one body of Christ. 
Where are you going to go? So you might as well learn to forbear with one another. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. Long-suffering means you are patient and kind with people who are difficult. When people mess up, you're long-suffering. When people are inconsistent, long-suffering. When people offend you, you are long-suffering. And every Bible study teacher, kids point teacher, leader and fellow co-laborer in the ministry with me, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. How? I learned this from my dad. With all long-suffering. Long-suffering should be our posture towards people. When you teach a Bible study and you got to correct someone, we don't correct them out of anger. We correct them from long-suffering. When we convince someone, we don't convince them from frustration. We try to convince them with long-suffering. When we work with people, we give people time to grow and mature because we want to be long-suffering. And our time is gone. I want to end with this as we all stand together. We've given a big target. Love, joy, peace, long suffering. Love people. Be emotionally stable. Generally happy in Christ. Have restored relationships. And put up with sometimes the dumb stuff that people do in your life and in your family. Now you may be feeling convicted as I am, but I wanna remind you tonight that you don't have to bear this fruit on your own. In fact, none of this is possible without the power of the Holy Ghost. You don't need another book from Indigo on how to forgive people who drive you nuts. What you need is a fresh touch of the Holy Ghost. I am a huge fan of therapy and counseling. I am a huge believer in getting resources to improve your mental health. But I do know one thing. If you need joy in your life, there is righteousness, there is peace, there is joy in the Holy Ghost. If you're finding yourself living from anger as opposed to love, what you need is to get the love that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And I know that we only have a few more minutes left tonight. But I wonder if all of us can just stretch our hands towards heaven and say, Father, we need some fruit in our lives. Father, we need to bear some good fruit in our lives. But God, I can't do this without you. So Holy Ghost, work on me. Holy Ghost, move on me. Spirit of God, confront me. But most of all, God, empower me so that I can live the way that you want me to live. Oh, raise your hands all over this room. And